0: I, mean, I have a very easy life Charlie, I don't know what he's made of but if people think I'm tough I'd say you know I'd take second place to him He's I, a Gemini like me so I know that he's, he's two different guys at least. least See, people don't understand how really sort of superbly lucky I am because I stand right in front of him and he's playing and stand in front of Charlie Watson, he's playing he's like, you know all your troubles and cares <laughs> pack up your troubles an old kit bag and just get behind it the guy's incredible to play with.
1: The most adulation I get is hello Charlie. Is there anybody alive out there?
0: Well that's cool, baby. I mean you know how it is. Rocking and rolling and whatnot. Hey everybody,
2: how you doing? I'm Lee McCormick, welcome to Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast sidecast, rockin' and rollin' and whatnot, episode 46, Celebrating Charlie Watts. As always, I appreciate you checking out the show from the website TrampsLikeUsPod.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you found it. Stay in touch with us via the website or our Facebook group page, Tramps Like Us, a Bruce Springsteen podcast. I'm releasing this episode on August 24th, 2022, one year since Charlie Watts passed away. Joining me on this episode is John DeChristopher, who I've met through Facebook and the Charlie Watts Appreciation Group that he started, and he has some connection to Charlie Watts. He spent some time with him. He's married to uh, the daughter of Vic Firth. I think he worked for Zildjian too, so he's got a lot of great stories for us, and he's a big Charlie Watts fan, so I'm glad to have John on the show with us. For this episode, we're going to remember, we're going to commemorate, and we're going to celebrate Charlie Boy. We all love Charlie Watts. I saw how you opened the show now with the tribute to Charlie, your late drummer, Mm -hmm. and I found it fascinating what you did. Before you guys come on, there's big screens and you see Charlie up there, but it's funny what you chose to show of Charlie drumming is a very Mm -hmm. sort of steady beat. It wasn't as yeah. fancy as Phil. It no, wasn't some exactly. uh, crazy drum solo. It really said, "This is the guy who was the heartbeat of our band." He yeah. kept pace, right? That's that's the point of what you're doing mm-hmm. uh, during yeah. the tour. Is is yeah. a heartbeat,
3: you know? I mean, Charlie was a heartbeat for the band, you know, and also a very steady personality. You know, he's very um, reliable person. You know, wasn't a diva, you know. That's the last thing you want in a drummer. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, so uh, Charlie was... A very subtle drummer, he you know it was everyone says it, what Charlie was, loved was jazz he loved jazz he did love jazz and and, and that gave him the subtlety uh, that perhaps that, that he wouldn 't have had if he hadn 't been such a student and and also played jazz a lot, but he, you know he was a rock drummer as well you know he was a, he was a steady rock drummer he wasn 't just a jazz drummer showing off or trying to be too technical and also was very had a very sort of dry sense of humor. And, and, um, you know, he was a wonderful guy to play. But I mean, we, you know, I miss Charlie because, you know, he had a great sense of humor and, and we, we also were we, outside of the band, you know, we used to hang out quite a lot and have interesting times going. We, we like sports. We go to football, we go to cricket games and we would have other interests apart from just music. Um, um, but, you know, of course I'm, you know, really miss Charlie so much. Um, you know, being up there playing and, and every time we get together now and rehearse, we always think, oh, yeah, and Charlie would say this and that. It, then he would do that and then he would... I mean, he was, was a very quirky guy. And, um, you know, we, we really miss him, but, you know, we did so many shows with him and, and so many tours with him and so many recording sessions. It's, it's uh, you know, strange being without him. But when he was sick, he said, well, you know, you've got to just carry on and do this tour. You know, you don't, don't stop because of me. So, so we did.
2: was so my pleasure to welcome to the show John DeChristopher. How you doing,
4: fella? I'm doing great, Lily. I'm doing great. Thank you.
2: Yeah, man. Thanks for joining me here. We're going to do this kind of remembrance, kind of uh, commemoration celebration of Charlie Watts. It's been a year since he's passed away, and uh, it's been a tough year, man. I find that as I'm getting older, rock stars dying, celebrities dying, it's kind of affecting me in a way that it's, I don't know, it's hard to process. Like, these guys are essentially strangers, They become a big part of your life. Like I've Charlie Watts has been in my life constantly since I was a little kid, right? So the man didn't know me, but I felt like I knew him, right? So losing Charlie last August was just so tough, and you know, just in general, like other celebrities like Tony Dow just passed away, like Wally Cleaver. Like I felt like a member of my family kind of passed away, right? So and yeah, I think it's you yeah. know as I'm getting older too, mortality becomes more of a, a realization. It becomes you know real, real quick, right?
4: Absolutely, yeah. And you know, and I'll say in the case of Charlie, you know, I, I mean, I, I did know him and he was a friend, and uh, but I was as shocked and surprised as uh, you know most everyone else because I wasn't in that sort of inner circle, really, really close inner circle toward the end there that was aware of his health situation. I had spoken with him. On his birthday last year, on June second, on his 80th birthday, and I wished him a happy birthday. And he 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 said something to the effect of, you know, I, hopefully I'll see you this year. You know, I think we're we're going to be working, and uh, you know, and and then the next thing I heard was that Steve Jordan was going to sub for some of the tour because Charlie had some health issues. And you know, and I was concerned, but I wasn't. I didn't want to call him and ask him what was going on. I, I, that's you know the last thing I would do. I respected that friendship that we had you know and so my point being really that when i got that news um you know when you did i was i was just devastated i was i was completely it was a gut punch you know didn't expect it didn't expect it
2: yeah i want to kind of talk to you about kind of you know what we did over the last year kind of to remember Charlie you know how we processed that, that, that grieving period but before we get into that kind of when did you become a Rolling Stones fan and when did you realize the impact Charlie Watts has on that band
4: I became a Rolling Stones fan um, well I mean I, I can't say it happened 50 years ago but I mean it it really sort of stuck and sunk in in a big way in 1972 Which is when i took up the drums and the rolling stones were a big part of me wanting to be a drummer and and ie charlie uh being the huge influence that he was on me as a drummer but um you know i i was aware of them I, i was born in 1960 so i was aware of the stones in the mid 60s as a kid you know listening to all those songs but my sister saw them in the summer of 72 and she's five years older than me my sister susan and um, really exposed me to their music and I just, I was hooked listening to Exile on Main Street that entire summer. And, um, and that just, from there I sort of did a deep dive into everything before that, that I could get my hands on. But it was 50 years ago this year that that, that I really got into the Stones in the, in the way that I am today. And, and that sort of led me to wanting to play the drums. I mean, I, I kind of put them first. As, as, you know, really Charlie sort of grabbing me and grabbing that... I had a sort of interest in the drums before that, but it was really hearing that music that made me want to pursue playing the drums.
2: And Myself, as well as a drummer, growing up, you know, I loved, I loved Kiss, right? So Peter Criss was a big influence on me. I was like, oh, I want to play drums. I want to play drums. And then I was about six or seven years old, and I, I saw the Let's Spend the Night Together concert film, The Stones yeah. in 81, and I just love that era. You know, seeing Charlie... With that little kit, you know, watching Peter Chris, and Kiss and the, and the kind of heavy metal hard rock <laughs> bands with their huge drum kits and seeing how yeah. I was like, oh, that's so cool, right? But then you see Charlie Watts and you see he's got the, well, this little old the kit, looks like it's from the 50s and it's old and wow, how, look at how he's holding his left his left drumstick and look at the angle of that snare drum and it just sounded so cool, right? So I was just hooked. You know, you kind of have to determine what kind of drummer you want to be, what kind of style you're going to pursue and I was just like, I want to be a Charlie Watts guy, <laughs> Right? So so I want to kind of talk a little bit about what we've done over the last year since Charlie passed away to kind of remember him, to sure. kind of get through this grief. Myself, you know, being a drummer yourself as well, you know, I've always loved drums, but Charlie kind of just kind of re-inspired me over the last year to kind of really get back into drums. recently bought a, a drum kit uh, behind me here. The, it's a 78 uh, Ludwig White vista Light kit that was owned by Nick Stepanitz of Teenage Head. Toronto punk band rock and roll band up here and there was the kit they used in like 79 81 so I've been refurbishing that wow and I got an old Rogers kit I took I took that all apart and I cleaned it up right and I've had a I've had a a drum pad beside my couch for the whole year and some big (laughs) first Charlie Watts sticks and you know it's still there so you know Charlie Watts inspired me as a seven-year-old and as a 47-year-old he's still inspiring me kind of thing right so that's great yeah right into drums listening to all the tunes all this year and you know i have a pretty extensive uh album collection i have all the rolling stone stuff whether it be cd digital vinyl i filled in a lot of my vinyl stuff i bought a lot of the live records some of those reissues that they've been putting out you know rewatching yeah, all the yeah. dvds and stuff like that right really absorbing a lot of charlie watts the last year
4: yeah same thing you know i mean i i you know there's probably a period i'm i'm older than you but i'd say probably in the in the 80s um I started uh, by then I'd been playing drums about 10 years I started in 1972 and you know my my for probably the first I don't know how many years I mean I, I it was like Charlie John Bonham Keith Moon Ringo Ian Pace I mean like all those guys are my influences with Charlie kind of at the top and then you know by my sort of late teens early 20s I got into Tony Williams and I got into Billy Cobham and Steve Gad and and you know I sort of expanded my horizons a little bit and I and admittedly at that time you know during the 80s the Stones were in sort of a weird funk um, they they really had sort of you know internally and and everything else they were just trying to find themselves and uh, so I sort of like I I won't say I lost interest but I wasn't as interested in what they were doing at that time and then by the time they sort of got it together by the late 80s I went and saw them in 89 um, I'd started working at Zildjian that year and I went and saw them in the Boston area when they played and uh, and it kind of rekindled that love you know, yeah. I, just seeing them live and hearing all those songs, you know and and then, you know, I, I, I was right back in it and, I, and I'll just say that once I got back into playing drums again which was about 8 years ago I'd stopped for about 20 years but once I got back into it it was like I was full on back into Charlie because I realized he's my North Star when it comes to the kind of drummer that i want to be um yeah. you know having a great feel having great time taste being economic with my fills yeah. um you know yeah you know you know what i'm saying At least supporting Absolutely. the guys around me yeah i mean it's all about um it's not about me as the drummer it's about making the rest of the band sound great it's about having that foundation which is what he has always been um and you know i think it. it i think you and i got it at a young age but a lot of people don't get it with charlie they really don't they 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 see his four-piece drum set with his couple of cymbals, and they you know they see with their their um i I wouldn't say they see with their eyes they see with their ears not their eyes maybe i don't know but they they don't hear a lot of technical flashy stuff so they sort of dismiss him but i but it's it's great when you see someone who does eventually get it and go okay now i get it you know
2: when Charlie passed away, I did a you know, two-and-a-half-hour uh, podcast episode, paying tribute to Charlie, and I had my good buddy Joey Anuzzi on that, that episode. And we talked about being at Humber College, the both of us, that's where we met going through the jazz program there, playing drums. And when we showed up there, we were like uh, late teens, early 20s, right? And all, all the drummers were talking about, who's your favorite guy? Who's your favorite guy, right? And it was Dave Weckel and it was Dennis Chambers, and a lot of Neil Peart, sure. right? We were up in Toronto here, and a lot of Neil Peart fans. And I was like, Charlie Watts yeah. is my guy. And a lot of the other drummers were like Charlie Watts. Like, do you realize yeah. we're at a drum school here, and you're a Charlie Watts fan? I'm like, fuck yeah, Charlie Watts <laughs> is the best, right? And my buddy Joe was like, he's like, yeah, man, Charlie's heavy. He, he, yeah, you guys don't get it, man. Charlie's the real deal, right? So, but that's the thing, right? He's my he's my thing. He's a support guy. He plays for the song, like even on his solo records, right? You think like he's a he's a, here's a solo records, He's going to be soloing. He's going to be the star of the show. Right. But no, he's He'll an couple He's yeah. an accompanying this. He's like. He's just supporting right. the guys in his band, and he's just laying down the time. And you guys play. This is my solo record, but I'm still the drummer, right?
4: Yeah, <laughs>
5: right. So you I gotta know.
4: I love it. I went through the same thing, you know, years earlier as a teenager, and and uh, having to defend him and defend my, you know, my opinion. And it was just kind of a funny thing to think back to those days of. And now, you know, I, old drummer friends that are, you know, old guys like me now, when I bump into some of these guys or if I interact with them on Facebook, it's it's. It's interesting and refreshing to see how many of these people that, you know, I'm going back like 40 years, 40 plus years that, that might've dismissed Charlie, yeah. you know, did finally get it and kind of really understood the genius of, of the quiet genius of his playing, you know? And, Absolutely. And I, you know, you know, you're, you're wanting me to do this today. And I thank you for inviting me, by the way. I appreciate this. Um, you know, you're asking me to do this really made me do a deep dive back into sort of, what he means to me and you know and it's it's so many things it's his sound it's his approach it's his you know kind of the way he decides what not to play where oh, yeah. so many other drummers would just go there's a there's a you know there's a whole measure right there just waiting for me to play something and he'll just he'll just play it right through with eighth notes yeah. you know and just and it and when I hear those things I listen to them and I go God, that's so great. Yeah, that's so, so great God, that there's nothing perfect, there. Yeah. It's That's yeah, so perfect. <laughs> so you know.
2: Perfect. Well, when I was uh, learning you know. drums and, you know, learning how to play, you play time, you have fills, you set up certain sections, right? Learning how to play a song, chorus section, maybe a solo go to the ride, right? There's some standard things that, that drummers do when you're playing like pop music, rock and roll music, right? And, you know, a lot of guys, okay, we're going to go into the chorus, we need a fill here. So guys would go around the toms, or I'm, I'm going to put this cool little lick in here, right? But Charlie would be just be like, I'm just going to do a little splash on the hi-hat. You know, just little things yeah. like that, just or a little, like, dum, dum, or just one tom hit or something. It's just so perfect, right?
4: <laughs> it's so perfect.
2: Like, I love his hi-hat stuff, the way he would just splash his hi-hat. And, and it was almost like I learned how you can open your hi-hat at any time and make it work. Just, right. If you're playing eighth notes, you can open that hi-hat any time. and just, It just gives it a little texture so it's not straight, and it... The way he would, well, you know, would flow into the I, chorus. I made some notes. Oh. Yeah.
4: It's funny you said that, Lee, because I made a I made a, a comment about exactly that and and I remember seeing that when I when I 1974 I, I went and saw the movie Ladies and Gentlemen The Rolling Stones when it was in a theater. It's like they they premiered it um, actually at some big concert venues with this big quadraphonic sound I don't know if you were even born at that point, but yeah. but it was like a it was like a big deal. It, they build it as like a um, the next best thing to seeing the Rolling Stones live in concert is seeing this movie. So, my sister, my older sister, my my only sister, took me to see it. I was like 13 years old, and I remember when they'd close up on Charlie and he's playing eighth notes on the hi hat during like "Bitch" or "All Down the Line" or one of those songs where it's like a straight eighth thing. And he's opening and closing his hi hat as he's playing the eighth notes and playing, you know, playing time the way you and I would. If you're playing your ride cymbal and you're playing like, you know, little quarter notes with your, with your, in my case, my right foot because I'm left handed. But, um, and he's doing that. And I'm, and it, and it, and I didn't even realize it at the time. But what it created was this elastic push pull thing that is so, it's like charlie's trademark you know and you oh, yeah. and now if you listen to songs like rock Soft, for example the the studio version exile and main street you can hear him playing that way you can hear that hi-hat opening so subtly and closing yeah. it's not like a it's not like a full-on bark but it's just that you can as you said he's just playing it and he's and it's just it it's like a it's it's really a rhythmic motion. It gives yeah,
2: movement that, to the hi hat rather than just a. It's like that's right. It's like open and it propels tight. Yeah,
4: exactly propels the song. It like carries the song forward. It gives it like a a little push, without really rushing it, and and it allows him. You know, he has this. You know, some songs you'd swear he's playing way ahead of the beat, but he's really not. He's playing maybe. On the beat, or even a little behind, but when he does those push-pull things, and you know, I've, I talked to him about that. He had no idea. Like he, it's, it's just natural. It's, it right? was it's so, just, yeah. yeah. It was so unconscious. He, <laughs> I said, "Did you ever really think?" He's like, "Oh God." He's like, I, "Oh, John, I don't know, I don't know." And I, I asked him one time. I said, "Did Jimmy Miller ever suggest some of this stuff?" And he's, you know, because I, I was very, I was very curious about how much Jimmy, as a great drummer that he was, like what his as the producer, what his influence might have been on some of those songs. And he said, he'd encourage him to play, to play more in certain places. But he, but I remember him saying to me, he got me to practice. He said, well, then he'd say, you know, but I, I, I don't really practice. I never really practice. but I'd take my sticks and play on my knee, you know, to sort of warm up before a show. And that was, I think something maybe Jimmy suggested, but, (laughs) but there was just, but my point being that so much of that, stuff that we talk about that mojo you know it was just this sort of unconscious creative thing that just came out of him you mm-hmm. know and I, and I and i and i you can't you can't overlook the influence that keith and and mick and bill wyman and everybody in the room at that time had on him too i mean i think it was a collective and mick taylor it had a collective effect
2: yeah I always th- say that like Keith and Charlie are really connected in the Stones. Most times, the drummer and the bass player will be you know the, the lock, but with the Stones, it's Keith and Charlie, and I think Keith plays the way he does because of Charlie and vice versa. Exactly. Right? If they had yeah. different guys in that band, Charlie might play a little different, but because he's got Keith there, he's hearing that riff and he's leaving space, and, and the way charlie plays he leaves that space for keith to fill in so the two of them groove and it's the push and pull between them a great era of the stones like the early late 60s to the mid 70s where charlie got rid of that symbol between his hi-hat and his rack tom so we could have that right. direct connection with keith right
4: yeah yeah exactly and, and he yeah i i agree i mean that's my favorite era that you know the mick taylor era for lack of a better yeah. descriptor too you know Mick mick was there for all those records and um, there was just an abundance of creativity and just, you know, the, 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 what they produced during that time was just, you know, just amazing. But yeah, I mean, and, and, and Charlie would, would tell you that as well, that, you know, where many bands followed the drummer, he followed Keith, everybody followed Keith yeah. and, and he's, I, he's, he's told me and he's, I've, I know I've read this in interviews with him where he said that in terms of like what he has to hear on stage it was Keith. really you know obviously mixed vocal but that giant monitor behind him it was just like a you know gargantuan speaker right behind his head and he had mainly keith in there yeah Yeah. and he you know (laughs) in and you know later years he'd have daryl and and you know in the old days he'd have bill wyman but but it was really like he'd say as long as i can hear keith it's fine and and there are examples of when he can't hear keith and there's a couple of bootlegs where you can hear um he gets thrown off there's a there's a great bootleg from australia from 73 during uh gimme shelter in the intro and you can you can tell he can't hear Mm -hmm. keith and he's playing the one and the three on the snare drum and he's he can't find the you know that and he finally sort of turns it around and then there's that live uh bootleg version of happy from 75 where keith completely throws it around and, and turns the whole thing around but but yeah, I mean those two were such a unit. That was, like you say, that was the magic of, of, of their rhythm section.
2: Yeah, there's a you're mentioning some of these kind of train wrecks, but there's, there was a moment on the uh, think the Oshawa '78 show, the CNIB show, where they're I think they're playing a Chuck Berry song. I forget which one. Maybe Let It Rock. And the whole, there's like three minutes where it's just a mess. It's like the beat is turned around. <laughs> But then there's there's like one part like there's a section where where Keith kinda just finds it and he goes, Okay, here it is and it's like and then just Charlie just yeah. hits it and then boom there it is and there's the stones and they become the stones after this fucking this big fuck up, right? <laughs> so it's, it's like that stuff I think is just beautiful, you know.
4: <laughs> yeah, I do too. It makes us all feel human, you yeah, know? Yeah. I mean like up the other night with my gig with my band and i you know when those moments happen you're frustrated but then you go yeah you know if, if the stones can do it it's okay if we do it you know <laughs> it's beautiful yeah. <laughs> that's just fine with me i'm just going to say in terms of processing the last year you know i i do a podcast as well a a show called live from my drum room and i also did i did actually four separate i thought three originally but i looked back and there are actually four separate episodes of remembering charlie and and like yourself, it was a way to sort of help process it. And I had a, a bunch of his friends and my friends and, you know, sort of contemporaries come on and just talk and tell stories. And uh, and, it, and it helped. It definitely helped.
2: Yeah, those were fabulous. I checked those out. I think I've listened to each one twice. So, uh, yeah, people, oh, I recommend go, go check out John DeChristopher's uh, Live from the Drum Room podcast. Those are great. And like like you said, you had like all the guys, like Steve Gadd was there, you had uh, Don McCauley, uh, some of Charlie, Charlie's tech guys, guys that have worked with him, yeah. right? other drummers that love him, You know. so yeah, great stuff. But well, I want to play you. some music on this episode, right? So sure. I figured we would each kind of pick a couple of songs uh, to play here, some songs to kind of you know, make us think of Charlie, so I'll let you go with your first pick, what do you got, what do you want to play here first?
4: Well, yeah, I've been I've been up and down, you know. I I'll, I'll go with my first one, um, just sort of chronologically, as Monkey Man from Let It Bleed.
2: I think for most of the Let It Bleed album, it's all Keith on guitar.
4: Brian was most, mostly.
2: Brian was out yeah. of the band. Uh, Mick was joining, but uh, Taylor that is, but he wasn't really playing on this record. I think he's on maybe one song or something like
4: that. I think he's playing rhythm on on Live With Me.
2: Right. But Monkey and, Man is and, Keith on all guitars, right? We have Bill on bass much, and yeah. uh, vibraphone. But, you know, we're talking about Charlie, those drums. <laughs> so great, right? And I, I love the part where um, the way Charlie would go between the ride cymbal and the hi hat on the verses, right? So there's. Man, I,
4: I, this is freaky. I, I wrote that down in my notes.
2: Right? Well, you, well, it's your song, man. You, 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 you want to talk? You, you, don't, you need <laughs> I don't need me. Well, we're speaking the <laughs> no. same language here. We're speaking the same yeah, language. Yeah, it's right? great. But the way, like. Yeah. You know, they would go to the E, the big E chord, like Charlie would make it like open it up on the ride cymbal. And then when they go back to that riff in the B down, 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 down And then Charlie goes back into the high yeah. for that groove, right? Just so sweet. <laughs> right. And you hear some of the no, fucking soul coming into the band, right? Around that time.
4: Absolutely. Yeah. And again, that's one of those songs that, um, you know, I, I wish I'd, I probably, if I'd asked him, he, he would probably say he couldn't remember why or why why he did that but but again that's one of those songs that i i want to know like what what made you think to do that was did it just feel right or again i'm and i'm not trying to take anything away from charlie but you know did jimmy miller say hey charlie try playing it on the ride and then that part and then come back and play the hi-hat but but whatever it is as to your point lee it's it's genius i think i i don't know any other drummers or or songs um where That happens where it's just this free, open, swinging ride beat, and then it's the hi hat closed and tight, and then back in there. The contrast, yeah. is it, it creates this incredible contrast between the two, you know, sounds. It's it's, it's so like fabulous
2: the way he goes to the ride cymbal for Mick. Mick's gonna sing, take it open, and then Mick stops, we we'll go back to Keith Riff, and then yeah. right tight. Oh, no, it's so great.
4: Um, so I, I discovered that song after. You know that that record came out three years before Exile on Main Street. But after listening to Exile, I went back to some of these other records. My sister happened to have one of which was Let It Bleed, and I remember that song. Just the drumming in it was just so everything. I mean, the, his use of the tom toms, his fills. Yeah, the it's
2: like a four and yeah. Right, they sound so good too. Right, the production.
4: The production is incredible, and and I think because i'd been used to hearing other songs where he was much more sort of restrained to hear him really open up like that it it was like wow and that led me into listening to like sticky fingers which i'll get to in a minute but Mm -hmm. um but but I, i think all of let it bleed my point being is i think that was a record that i think i started to see charlie really get more adventurous on that record moving forward for the next few years where he he, you know, he always had moments of being adventurous in different songs, but that entire record between that and like Midnight Rambler and, um, you know, he, he had, he had a lot of, he really stretched in and, in, in a lot of situations. So,
2: yeah, it's like the transition period too, right? So he's coming out of that kind of. Early to mid 60s period, where he's, he's playing matched grip still, and it's kind of that British invasion, kind of sloppy, you know, satisfaction stuff. You know, late, late yeah. 69 in the early 70s, he goes into this, he gets the Gretch kid, he gets traditional grip, he starts getting more funky, more groovy, and then that would kind of progress to like 77, 78, where he's got the total trademark, you know, lifting off on two and four, and it's he's perfected, yeah, it right. yeah, yeah, so. So, Monkey Man, exactly. what a song. I love that middle part, dude. I'm a monkey, where it breaks down, and then Keith with the riff. And
4: churn,
2: oh, man. Yeah. What a song. What a song. <laughs> love it. Yeah. first album, the debut album, the self-titled record, released in 64 in the UK, uh, released a few months later in the US as uh, England's newest hit makers. And I want to play Carol, right? Chuck Berry cover. They were doing a lot of Chuck Berry songs. The first songs the Stones ever released was uh, Come On, was their first single, right? right. Chuck Berry cover. And they were playing lots of Chuck live, right? So obviously this is probably a burner from the live set. Let's record it. Recorded uh, January 3rd, 1964, Great rocking song here. Similar groove to Route 66, kind of that straight eighth th- note thing, right? And you got to think, early 60s, the straight eighth note rock drum feel wasn't really popular, right? We're coming right. into the 50s where everybody's swinging and guys were doing kind of straight eighths, but it wasn't as pronounced and as driving as this, right? It reminds me of. Uh, Like Ringo's, I saw her standing there, that straight eighth kind of pulse, driving the band with that dun 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 dun. -dun 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 -dun. Like, we didn't hear that yet, right? So, this song's got this. It's all Keith Richards. It's all Charlie. You know, he's cooking on this. It's probably that that, uh, sky blue Ludwig kit he's playing there. Probably back then, right? Yeah.
4: It, if it if it's... I think he got that in 65.
2: Did he? Okay, so maybe so not. So maybe he's playing a different it kit.
4: Been, it could have been a white Ludwig kit that he had or even his premier kit. But I think he had a white Ludwig kit prior to that.
0: Right.
4: Uh, Marine Pearl. And I think that might have been what it was. But he, that's all. Don McCauley could definitely sort of... Give us the definitive us on that the, uh, one. Right?
2: Yeah, the other cool thing I love about this is uh, if you listen to the track, you will hear like a squeak there, right? Now it's not a, it's not a mouse. There wasn't a mouse in the studio, <laughs> right? So I assume it's his speed king pedal. That's, it's that's probably squeaking, his pedal, right? Like that was a thing. Some of those records, you would hear the pe- the drum pedal squeaking on that. And I think you hear it. He's playing yeah. four to the floor, and you hear this kind of faint squeak there. I have really to listen loud. for it. Yeah, you'll hear it. If he, there's uh, you yeah. know, "Needles and Pins" by the Searchers, I think that that there's a sure. there's a yeah. strong squeak on that song. Oh, You hear the squeak <laughs> in this song, which I think is just kind of cool, right? <laughs> and the over yeah. The overdubbed yeah. hand claps are great. Um, I love the uh, the rock and solo by Keith in the middle. Charlie moves to the, the ride cymbal, but yeah, it's just a rockin' song, right? I love this song so much, man. <laughs> and the, yeah. the snare yeah. drum. Listen to the snare drum. The way he's burning he's really like cracking the rim.
4: Yeah.
2: I'm, I'm breaking a sweat just talking about it, man. <laughs> I love it. Oh, Carol.
4: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember. I remember listening to that and trying to play to it. And as you said, those stick, those swinging like eighth notes, those straight eighth notes rather. It's like really for a young drummer, in, in those days for me, it was really hard to play that like evenly and and steadily. Yeah, you know, it's, it's harder than you think to play that. At That tempo, you know.
2: Yeah, and you got he They're playing he as really a, a band, band too, right? Like if you put a metronome to it, it might be, it might move, you know. But that's the feel, right? Sure. They're driving, and they're gonna, they're going to speed up yeah. a little bit. They're going to slow down a little. That's the that's the genius of this of the the band, right? <laughs> Love it, exactly. Love it.
4: So, you know, just moving ahead to, to the next studio album after let it bleed was sticky fingers and that record, you know, is chock full of, you know, the entire record from start to finish. How do you, how do you find anything that's not unbelievable, but I picked moonlight mild because that song, I just, it's always been such a beautiful song for me to listen to. Um, and again, Charlie's drumming in it is so supportive of what's happening, uh, you know, throughout the rest of the song with the vocal, with Mick Taylor's beautiful guitar part, um, Keith's part, um, you know, the, the, the mallet work and the tom-toms. It yeah, he's reminds playing mallets, right? Of,
2: it's not sticks. He's playing mallets. So exactly. You, so you hear that yeah, wash on the cymbal and the,
4: the bounce. The of cymbal the, swell that brings it in. The toms, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he comes in with the mallets, and he's playing the mallets on the toms. Like, and it, it it later in life, it reminded me of like, and I and I have to wonder if there was some Elvin Jones influence to what, you know, what gave him the idea to do that. Like, I think of Elvin playing Cherokee on the with the mallets, on the tom toms, and and it's just it's a beautiful thing. And then he when he when he plays the beat, when he starts playing the groove with the mallets, you can hear that he's actually playing the softness of the hi hat and the snare drum. And if you've ever done that, it's it, it's like a different sound than with sticks. But yeah. that part where it's, um, I'm sleeping under strange, strange skies, and he's definitely playing it with the mallets, and then he switches back to the tom toms, and he's, he's blah, blah 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 blah. It's just it's so beautiful. I, you know, last year I remember um, listening to that song and just crying because. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a beautiful song. So I, that's my, that's my second pick, but I will say as as a, as a strong runner up from that record, um, I got the blues looking at songs, as you said, that are sort of deep cuts. Um, I got the blues to me is one of the most difficult songs for a drummer to play. When you think of how far, how slow the tempo and how far like behind the beat, he makes it feel and the way he holds that. I mean, it's, You know there were no click tracks back then there was they didn't fix that later with pro tools i mean that was charlie laying down that incredibly i I should have clocked the tempo Mm, ahead of this to to, but it's got to be 60 or i don't know 65 or something it's ridiculous how slow that song is and how he makes it feel so great there are a few drummers jeff beccaro you know charlie Steve Gadd, I don't know, how you, There's a, yeah. you count them on one hand, that can make a song feel that good at that tempo.
2: Levon Helm's kind of got that groove. Levon it's, Helm, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, Moonlight Mile's cool. It's interesting that it closes the record, right? It, and it's kind of the antithesis of uh Brown Sugar. <laughs> right. This is right. a Moonlight right. Mile was a mix song. Keith isn't even on this track, right? This was the first song the Stones recorded without Keith. He just didn't show up and they were just like, Oh, Mick will play guitar, it's like in this open E
4: tuning. That's right. You're right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And uh and, and Keith isn't on sway either, I don't think.
2: Oh, he's not, eh? Okay. I think-
4: I don't yeah, think he's yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I think Keith has talked like towards the end of, of the recording. He was not in a good shape, so he kind of didn't show up for some of the last sessions. Yeah. Charlie has said, though, that right, right. this is like his favorite Mick Taylor moment, his Moonlight Mile. He just remembers Mick Taylor yeah. being at his peak during this song. Interesting side note before we play this song is I saw the band in 99. I was sitting sort of behind the stage, kind of at 5 o'clock. The stage was at 6 o'clock. And, you know, I thought it might have sucked, but it was incredible because I got to see an, a great vantage point of Charlie for that whole night and the way that he would interact yeah. with Keith. And they played Moonlight Mile that night. So, oh, so that man. was interesting, seeing him yeah. play with the mallets and everything. So, uh, yeah, really, right, t- really right. tasty, really tasty.
4: Fantastic. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Had a great Christmas with the Rolling Stones, right? <laughs> I got the uh, I got the Tattoo You Super Deluxe Box Set, right, which had the uh, like a live concert from Wembley in '82. I remember playing that on Christmas Day, and then a couple of days later, I went to see the Unzipped. Rolling Stones exhibit that they had in Kitchener here at a museum where they had uh, you know some of the Rolling Stones artifacts. I'd seen that um, exhibit in Nashville a few years ago. It was called Exhibitionism but it's called Unzip Now. So I went to yes. check it out. It was great. Yeah. They had Charlie's Sky Blue Ludwig kit there. They had like his black Gretsch Nitron kit there from the early 70s. You know, they had uh, one of his outfits from the 72 tour, red slacks with the kind of white bedazzled tank top, right? Yeah, so I was there yeah. soaking in some of that vibe. So <laughs> yeah, it was just great. I saw that, that
4: in stuff. New York. Yeah.
2: yeah. is exhibitionism. To be among- yeah. It's yeah. great to be amongst that stuff, right? And see, they had his like little uh, drum kit that he had in the suitcase that he played on Street Fighting Man, right? All that stuff. That's right. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. So great. Yeah. So great. Incredible. Yeah. All right. I got another pick here. I'm going to go to the 80s here to, the, to a not popular record, Dirty Work. You know, a lot of people have said that that's probably the least favorite stones record. There was a lot of turmoil going on in the band there. Right. Uh, Mick and Keith weren't getting along. Uh, Charlie was actually dabbling. This was his dabbling period. He was getting in some alcohol. He was doing speed. He was actually doing heroin. Right. Keith kind of had to have an intervention with him to say, Charlie, man, you got to, this is not your bag. Right. (laughs) kind of thing. Right. So, uh, you know, there were some dark moments during that, those sessions, there was some guest players and stuff like that, but there's a track on there that I really dig. No, there's, there's a handful of songs I really like on that record. But the one I want to play is Had It With You, which is this quirky little song towards the end of the record. It's written by Jagger and Richards. It's got a Ron Wood uh, writing credit on it as well. Now, this is a four-piece. Uh, there's no bass on this. Bill Wyman didn't show up for this, right? So it's uh, it's like Keith, Mick on vocals and harp, Charlie on drums. Ronnie's there. Ronnie's actually playing sax on this, right? There's some, no kidding. Yeah, okay, there's yeah. some, li- there's the some right. little sax yeah. underneath there, some little comping like... Dun, dun. underneath there. That's Ronnie in the sax, right? But I just love this tune. And Keith wrote it. Just listen to the lyrics. Is it about a girl or uh, is it about Mick? I assume it's about, it's probably about Mick, you know, (laughs) given the climate of the band, (laughs) right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. But just yeah. great drumming on this. Charlie's got his four to the floor thing going. Uh, it's, it's very raw, lo-fi yeah. production, lots of compression. I assume he's playing his main, uh, his 57 Gretsch kit there, that, uh, you know, wood colored kit, the, the classic Charlie kit, right? Uh, great fills, hi-hat work comp in here. It's the open close of the hi-hat stuff we were talking about earlier. Lots of that on this. There's a nice little uh, breakdown section. Where they kind of drop the time out and they bring it back with the, the Keith riff, and Charlie comes in with those great fills. And uh, yeah, it's a great one. Had it with
4: you. I, I'm going to listen to it afterward. Yeah, I'm going to re listen. I, I haven't listened to that record, admittedly, in a, in a long time. So
2: Check it out. One, yeah. that, that one really rocks. The, Charlie does the the cool classic uh, Bucket of Fish ending, too, right? Bucket of Fish. <laughs> <laughs> right, people? Every, drummer's, yeah, every, yeah. every drummer knows yeah. the Bucket of Fish. Do-ga-da-sh, yeah. Do-ga-da-sh. Yeah. Fish, right? <laughs> <laughs> Bucket of fish. Oh,
4: that's great.
2: Good. All right, you got another Good. song for us, Sir John?
4: I do, yeah. So my my last pick again, I'll say it again, this was the hardest assignment I've ever had, picking three songs. (laughs)
2: It's tough. eh? I know, I wish Um, we could have picked like 12. Every time I do, I do a (laughs) lot of lists and countdowns on this podcast, right? And it's always hard because you always have the couple ones that come to mind first, but there's always those like, if we're picking three songs, number four and five, you're like, ah, I I gotta leave that one out, right? It's tough.
4: (laughs) I don't know about you, but my, you know, tomorrow I could have, three three different songs that are just the absolute yeah you know best but but this one song that i'm about to mention is my all-time favorite rolling Stones song when people ask me you know what's your favorite rolling Stones song it, it uh, invariably it comes back to the song it's all down the line nice uh, from exile Excel. on main street and 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 i'll just my quick story behind that is that um i bought the single the happy single um, when exile came out that summer and I, you know, I was listening to my sister's records. And I wanted to have my own, I bought uh, tumbling dice and happy, the two singles from that record. And, uh, the flip side of happy was all down the line and I hadn't heard it before. I hadn't, I, for whatever reason, when I'd listened to whatever, I'd listened to an exile and Manchester, I hadn't got to that, I guess side four, but in any case, after a couple listens, this was like my favorite song. It was like I liked it better than anything, and largely due to Charlie's drumming and the fact that I, I think even at you know eleven, almost twelve years old, I recognized there was something really special to what he was doing in that song and the way he set up the verses, the way he set up you know the the changes between the the verse and the chorus, um, and as you said earlier, even if it was just a little. Um, sometimes it'd be a fast, fluttery fill, but other times it would just be like, da-da-boom, kind yeah, of yeah. little thing that would just transition it over and and just support it, you know, and, and set up that next part of the song. And I, I got it. And, and, you know, as a drummer, over over the years to come, I I borrowed from that whole concept of, like, not not playing a fill around the tom-toms just for the sake of filling that spot, but just playing a syncopated da-da-boom or... Boom, kind of thing, and you know Charlie's sort of signature type fill from that time. So
2: yeah, they just make you smile. Yeah. Eh? When you hear those, it just brings a smile to your face, right? Like if the guy was going, it'd be like, wow, he's a good drummer. But Charlie just goes and you just it just smiles, it just feels good, right?
4: Yeah, yeah. And the way he comes into the song, that intro, yeah, I know. It's just it's. I listened to it this morning, you know, and I'm yeah. thinking I was out for a run and I'm thinking, you know, what is it about this song if I have to explain it and I'm like, why? Well, I, I don't I don't know that I can even really explain it. It's just so great. I think it's and again, I I'll I'll say that it's it's not your typical Charlie song in terms of it's busier than what you think of him playing and and so I I I try to hip a lot of people to this song that aren't hip to Charlie and that might not think he's very you know, he's got a lot of technique or whatever the case may be and i'll say listen to this song and you'll hear he's got seriously got some shit going on yeah and if you think he never played i've heard I've, people have said to me well he never plays a fill and they obviously aren't listening yeah. you know they're not paying attention if you think charlie never plays a fill he plays a fill where it needs to be played and he he doesn't overdo it but that song is chock full of great tasty fills like where they should be yeah.
2: like in reality charlie's always playing fills like you'll rarely hear three or four bars played straight you know he's always putting in a little something there whether it be a light hi-hat thing or something you don't probably right. don't even realize but he's he's always changing stuff up right now this song was, exactly. was demoed during the sticky fingers session it was kind of written kind of as a sister song to brown sugar that kind of riff and then they took it to um uh, uh, Nelcott in France to record, which I actually visited, right. John, a few years ago. I work on cruise ships wow. uh, playing uh, Ringo in a Beatles tribute band. And we were doing gigs and the cruise ship was in France and we pulled into this port and I'm like, we're near Nelcott. So I spent the whole day and I walked there. It's closed yeah. off. It's got a personal owner now, so you can't get to it. But I was able to go down by yeah. a, uh, this beach where I could see it up on a hill. It was a French, so it was a topless beach, by the way. And uh, <laughs> so I was able to see part of the... Uh, the the porch there with the uh, the rail there and I recognize it from all the pictures and then I walked around yeah. and I went to the front gate and you could see the big gates and it, you can see the it has the uh, Nelcott written there so I I was there to soak Picture up the it, vibe yeah. for a while right so
4: I would just touch it and just try to yeah. get some of that. Mojo Mojo, Mojo
2: on there Yeah some XL Mojo on there Yeah but you can hear You can hear like the hot basement in this song Right like they were recording it in the basement In France Must have been 100 degrees down there Right it's probably 2 in the morning Like they're all half gacked right (laughs) And they pull out this song And it's just (laughs) fucking awesome right and I know, I know. You're talking about those fills, say, right? Those over the over the riffs in between the sections, right? Down, down, yeah. Now on the record, it's it's tamer than how he's played it live, right? Uh, I mentioned some of the live sets they put out over the years. Uh, recently, the Elma Combo '77 set came out. Great version on that. I love the yeah. version from the uh, the Shine a Light film uh, that Scorsese yeah. filmed. That's great. And there's a version where you can see like a Charlie cam where it's just the camera is just his shot. Uh, So I encourage people to check that on YouTube and you can just watch Charlie play drums for this entire song. And it's him on the hi-hat. It's it's him riding on that China symbol, all those fills, right? Yeah. And then the the quintessential moment is he finishes the song, right? And he kind of looks over his shoulder to the camera and does this like, like he just kind of lets out a big breath, like, that was a lot of work kind of thing.
4: I love that. I, I, you know, I, I, I mentioned that to him when I saw Shine a Light. Um I I I saw the premiere. We were invited, my wife and I were invited to the premiere for the, of that movie in uh 2008 in New York and uh I talked to him afterward about that exact moment. And I said, "My favorite I said that's my favorite song." And he kind of smiled and he and like, I think I told him that before. But I said, "You yeah, just, know, it's just that song just resonates with me." On so many levels but i just love that song so much and uh and i said my favorite part was when the end of it when you looked at your um you know you just looked at the camera and and what made that like that gasp be like and he said it's you know that's hard work he said keith just keeps playing it, he just kept (laughs) playing it you know and and if you remember it really they really now carry you know extend that ending quite a bit compared to how they used to play it they had a pretty it was a pretty straight yeah, it was sort a of 3 minute, minute song, song and then they turned it into
2: a 5 yeah. minute like yeah even it, Mick it there's was, a part yeah. in that section where Mick is like dancing and he comes back and there's a shot like over Charlie's shoulder and you see like the connection with like Mick and Charlie laughing at each other cuz they're like wow this song's really cooking or something like that right it's really yeah nice. yeah, <laughs> yeah it's great brilliant
4: i love i also the, there's a live version um from ladies and gentlemen from 1972 um that's, you know, the year the song came out and it was when they were really, you know, McTaylor, of course, in the band plays this, I'm sure you know the version, this, yeah. this ripping slide solo. And, uh, and you know, to, it, it was like when the band was just really on fire, just like at their sort of pinnacle point, you know, their peak period. And, and there's another version a year later from Brussels, uh, the seven October 73 Brussels affair. Yeah, great show. Um, where which is just again you know and it's as you say there's he Charlie's playing even more like in those live versions yeah. with even you know more fills and and you can tell there's just so much there's so much energy in the band at that time they're just they're just really Unbeatable. having a great time playing oh, yeah. it yeah absolutely yeah. which
2: one which version do you want you want the uh, XL version the the B side to that single that you heard or do you want a live version sure or do you want to play it yeah I I see
4: the XL version yeah, yeah. It's, let's play that it's, it's, and see if you
2: can feel the heat. From France, there, summer of 71 when he recorded it.
4: Yeah, I can definitely feel the heat from that.
2: But I got one more song to play. Now, I wanted to go to a Charlie Watts solo song here, right? Like, so we play a lot of Stone song, but, you know, Charlie Watts had a solo career where he was able to get some of his uh, his jazz music out there, you know, play the music that he really loved, some of his passion projects kind of thing, right? He did some big band records, did a couple of Charlie Parker tributes. Uh, he did a ballads record, which I really love, uh, you know, Long Ago Going Far Away with Bernard Fowler. He did that experimental drum record with Jim Keltner where they're kind of paying tribute to some of their right. drum heroes. Like, each song is named after a guy. Like, there's a Shelly Mann, Tony Williams, Elvin Jones kind of track, right? I wanted to play a song right, off the, exactly. the Charlie Watts and the 10-tet record, the Watts at Scott's live record. So this is the Charlie Watts yeah. is a trio, Charlie on drums. Now, Charlie's playing, like, his uh, – His 1960 Black Round Badge uh, Gretsch kit, which was modeled after Tony Williams' kit that he played, those same sizes, right? I'm not sure offhand. It's like 18 kick drum maybe on that one.
4: Probably 18, 12, 14.
2: Yeah, smaller sizes, yeah, but it's, it's yeah. like the Tony Williams kit is kind of what he calls it. He's got his buddy Dave yeah. Green, his childhood friend on bass. Right, I love that relationship too, right? We talk about the Keith and the Charlie relationship, but you know Charlie's had a relationship with his this bass player, Dave Green, longer than he's known the Stones, right? And he played with them all up to the end, right? so He's one of his best friends yes. on bass. I know, so great. We have Brian Lemon on piano. And then to kind of fill out the 10-tet, we have uh, six horn players and a guy on percussion, Right, you know, the song I want to play is "Take the A Train," which is the last song on that uh, two CD set. Came out in two thousand four. Recorded June of two thousand one. Now we mentioned earlier, you know, this is not Charlie Watts showing off. This is Charlie being a support. Drummer, right? It's his band. He's the leader, but he's just supporting. He's just going to swing and let you guys kind of play play the head, right? So, yeah. you know, Charlie's just swinging on that ride and he's going between his cymbals. He's probably got like four cymbals from the 30s and 40s or 50s, right? Those, all those old cymbals that he used to find, right? He's, he's yeah. riding on his china. Yep. He's got a, like a swish symbol there too, right? So, in between the sections, he's moving around. He's got, he's got his cross stick going. I love how he's setting up the fills in between the sections. Now, I chose this song because. You know, my favorite Stones record is the Still Life Live record from 82. My favorite Stones song is Under My Thumb off that record. I just love that intro where they had Duke Ellington version of Take the A Train on the house speakers, right? The the announcer would come on the uh, speaker, ladies and gentlemen, the Rolling Stones. Keith would come in with that Under My Thumb riff and then they're off, right? But I just love that intro with the Take the A Train, right? So I thought it was cool that Charlie's playing this, right? So uh, yeah, any thoughts on this one, John?
4: I, it's a great pick, and I and I think you you hit the nail on the head too in terms of like Charlie's um, approach to playing this song is is a, strictly to support, you know, the horn players, the rest of the band, um, not you know not to shine himself. It's not it's it's not him trying to. I, I just I love that about him when I saw him several times in in solo projects and and uh, you know I never went there with the expectation of seeing Charlie. Um, I think, you know, maybe some have, but I'd always go there really enjoying the fact that it was, he was enjoying himself so much, first of all. You could see it. You could see him. You know, in those days, he didn't smile as much with the Stones. Yeah. Later years, he did. But every time I saw him with his own bands, he was always smiling. Oh yeah. Can you, you believe we're playing the
2: A Train? Oh my God. <laughs> I know. Yeah,
4: and you'd, you'd see like one of the guys taking a solo, and he'd just look over and just be smiling, like yeah. just loving it. And like you say, he'd he'd move, he'd play like time on the on the swish, yeah. you know, over his floor tom, and he'd play that little, and then he'd move up. He had like a twenty two inch. Original Istanbul K ride that he'd break out for those gigs. Yeah. And one time, you know, he said to me, "I've I've got my old K with me tonight." You know, and <laughs> so um, proud, and, right? and, and yeah, I know, so proud. And and he, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you and I both know, you know, he was like fulfilling a fantasy when he when he played those gigs Absolutely. of like thinking about Dave Tuff and all his heroes and like here he was, at, like you know, I think a Dave Tuff is a, is a similar kind of drummer, just a a supporting time player. And then in more modern times, if you see a guy like Steve Gadd with his band, again, he's not, for the most part, I mean, he, he might have a, a song or a section where he's going to maybe have a minute to blow, but for the most part, he's he's playing yeah. time, you know? He's it's not like you're players. seeing
2: the Buddy Rich band where Buddy's going to solo no, for like yeah. half the song, right? It's not that kind of a
4: gig. <laughs> right. Right? It's not that kind of gig, yeah. yeah. It's not that, yeah, that's not, that's not, if you're going to hear that, then you might be disappointed, but hopefully, you know, you, you won't be because... Well, we're talking past tense, but but you know because the music is so great and the Mm -hmm. the spirit of what they're doing is so great.
2: Yeah, and you reminded me too. Charlie was the guy that made me realize I can play time on other symbols besides my ride symbol. Right. When I was learning yeah. drums, I was yeah. like, okay, if I'm going to play ride symbol, it's always got to be this symbol. But Charlie would ride on his crash or was China. And I'm like, yeah, it's all symbols. You can play time. It sounds different. Right. And I then know. when I was studying drums in Humber College, playing jazz and learning how when you're a different guy takes a solo, you need to keep the groove the same, but just change it slightly to show a change in the section. So moving from right. different symbols is the perfect way to get that just a different texture, but keeping this, the, 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 right. the feel the same. Right.
4: The feel, yeah, different yeah. color, different texture, and and uh, I remember the first time I saw him with the stones riding his china, yeah. And I, I he'd, he'd was break them like, wow. that way
2: too, because you can't, you're not supposed to play them like that. But he would go through, no, them, you're not, yeah, you break them.
4: He went through them a lot. He and he he said something like, you know, I, I something, yeah, I go through a lot of them, you know, doing that. But you know, they're not meant to be played that way. Yeah. But that, you know, but who was he was not a he was not one of convention. You know, that was the great thing about him is.
2: We gotta have like a like a, an auction for uh, busted Charlie Watts symbols. Wouldn't you love to have a china from Charlie that's got like a crack in it from like this is from '96 tour and it's <laughs> or something like that. Yeah, broken <laughs> it, broken in Germany '97 or something like that. <laughs> All right, so let's listen to take the A train. Let's listen to Charlie Watts swing. Thank you. any final thoughts on charlie before we wrap this up man how about you give us one story i know you had a relationship with him and uh can you share like one story a favorite moment a funny moment of you with charlie
4: wow um yeah sure I, i i i have many great stories um you know A year later it's still hard to believe he's not here and i'll just say that it's and it's it's every bit is is sad and hard to think that he's not here because you know like uh, like you and i'm sure like a lot of people he's he's ever present you know and and uh and you sort of feel like he is and then when the reality sets then he's yeah um well let's let let me think if i can I, i have some stories that are maybe too long to tell but i'll i'll tell one quick story and Um, this was, this goes back to 2006. Um, the Rolling Stones were about to begin their, their tour in September of 2006. They were rehearsing in Boston and I'd been at the Modern Drummer Festival that weekend. I was coming home on the train from New York back to Boston on a Monday afternoon and my cell phone rang and it was Charlie. And, uh, he said, uh, where are you? And I said, I'm on the train coming back from New York are you coming back to Boston? And I said, yes. He said, well, we're rehearsing tonight. And I knew they were playing that Wednesday was their first show. So I had planned to, you know, I planned to come. We'd already spoken about that. And he said, we're rehearsing tonight. Um, if you'd like to come to rehearsal and I'd been to a rehearsal once before, a couple of years before, and it was great, you know, closed private, um, so he hands the phone to his drum tech and his drum tech gives me the information as to where they are and the location and all that. So I fast forward, I get home and I rock it into Boston to the rehearsal and it's a great night spending time with Charlie and at this private rehearsal. And I said to Charlie, um, Charlie tomorrow night, this drummer, Steve Smith who played in the band journey is playing at the regatta bar in Boston uh, with this jazz band called jazz legacy. And they play all this music in, in tribute to Elvin Jones and Roy Haynes and Buddy Rich. And I really think you'd enjoy it. And I'd taken him to the same jazz club years before to see Brian Blade with uh, Joshua Redmond. So I said, it's that same club we went to you know, years ago. I said, yeah, I'd like to go. He said, can I bring Tim with me, Tim Reese, the sax player in the Stones? I said, absolutely, I'll, I'll set it up. So the next night we go to the club. We see Steve Smith, and Steve's excited that Charlie's there. And I'm sitting with Charlie, and Steve is playing his ass off. I don't know if – I'm sure you have seen Steve at one time or another. And, yeah.
2: He came, and to, really, he came to our college, actually. When I was in Humber College, uh, mid-'90s, three-year program there, he, came, okay, and g- he yeah. came and gave a clinic. So we hung out with him there, for like yeah. a whole day. Yeah, it was great.
4: Yeah, he's, he's great. And he, and he, you know, he's pulling out all the stops. He's just doing all his, he's doing the Max Roach, Mr. Hi-Hat thing. And so the, I'll fast forward to the end of the night, we go back to see, uh, Steve, I bring Charlie back there and, um, and Charlie's like, it was, that was just fantastic. It was so great. It was, you know, and Steve's all, thank you very much. And they're chatting and, and, uh, and Charlie says something like, it's so great to meet you. And Steve said, well, actually, Charlie, we did meet, once before and charlie said really he said well yeah i used to play in the band journey and we opened for you in ni- 1981 um and 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 at jfk stadium and our singer steve perry said we want to thank you all for making our record escape number one in the country and the fans booed them off stage journey got booed <laughs> off stage yeah. so charlie has this look in his face he's got this shocked look like he's like, oh, you know, sorry, man. He's, like he's like oh yeah he said." oh, I'm so sorry. And he was like, really, really sincerely sorry. And he said, you were in Journey? And then Steve starts laughing. He said, yeah, I was in Journey. And, and Charlie said, were you this good then? And Steve <laughs> said, probably not. But it was it was one of the funniest oh, things. Was he was just like, um, you know, it, it was, maybe you had to be there, but it was a, Steve and I still talk about that as one of the, you know, funnier moments. But Charlie, you know, for years after that, would would thank me and say, you know, how's Steve Smith doing? I brought Steve to see him in uh, 2012 when Charlie played at the Iridium with the, with the uh, ABC and D of Booby, Booby. Booby. Yeah. Brought, yeah, Steve and Keith Carlock. And we had a great time and, and uh, I brought, I brought Steve Gadd to see Charlie once in Paris. We were there and, 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 and Charlie, I'll just say, you know, another funny story. I, I also brought, uh, at one time in London, at Ronnie Scott's, Peter Erskine and Andy Newmark and Steve White, a bunch of drummers to see him, and uh, and he when I when I brought Peter Erskine, he sort of pulled me aside. He said, "You know, you're always bringing drummers to see me, and you know, it, it, you could you could tell it made him a little nervous. Yeah, I mean, yeah. because he he really respected these guys. He yeah. was Charlie Watts, but he certainly respected these guys. Can Peter watch my
2: technique and stuff, right?
4: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he yeah. and he's he you know he was. He, I, you know, I just, I love that about him because he was so human and so, so humble. humble.
2: yeah, very, yeah, yeah. What, what a yeah. guy. Eh? One and, final you know, thing, you know his signature? Yeah. I recognize the C and the B, right? He would sign his, his signature like Charlie Boy, his nickname, CB. Charlie Boy, yeah. Yeah, but he, it also looks like there's an L and a star. Do you know what that is on his signature?
4: I, you know, I should. My my wife might know because um, my wife, if you don't know, she's Vic Firth's daughter, my, right. my wife Kelly, and um, and. I remember her telling me she before I met Charlie, she got me and we were just friends at the time. She got me a signed poster, uh, a Vic Firth poster with Charlie sticks of, yeah. of you know, what, and she explained what that whole thing was. And she might remember, but I think it might even be Junior. Is it his father's name was was Charlie also or Charles? So I I don't know if it if that's if that's part of it, but it's definitely Charlie Boy.
2: Yeah, you can see the CB and it looks like a L and a star. I don't know.
4: Yeah. That's a good question. You know, maybe Don McCauley might even know the answer to that. One of the Charlie Watts mysteries of life. Yeah, It is. Yeah.
2: All right, John. Well, I thank you so much Mm -hmm. for spending some time with us, sharing some stories, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts on Charlie, helping us remember Charlie. What can I say, man? I appreciate you. I encourage people to check out your uh, Live from the Drum Room podcast. Also, you started a Charlie Watts Appreciation Facebook group. Right after he passed away. I guess that's how yes. we connected. Yeah. You know, I've been very um right. active on that site, you know, a lot of good Charlie Watts fans and stuff like that. So is there anything you want to plug or mention before we get going you, here?
4: That's great. I, I appreciate you plugging my uh my YouTube and, and um podcast live from my drum room. And you know, anybody that hears this and enjoys this conversation, please go to my YouTube channel and subscribe. And as I said, there's four episodes from last year with different drummers commenting and sharing stories about charlie and i also have as i say the podcast is on all the different podcast platforms um, but no i appreciate that and if people are on facebook to check out the charlie watts appreciation group and um yeah and i and i thank you lee for inviting me today i'm sorry i was a little flaky about it i you know it's it's uh it's still hard to even yeah. think about doing stuff like this, but yeah, I understand, and
2: I, I appreciate you joining yeah. me because you know this is how I'm getting through, you know, processing, you know, Charlie Watts' yeah. passing, and you know, celebrating him this way really helps. And I appreciate you spending some time with us. So, uh, thanks again, John. It's Cheers. Great. Have a great rest of the In summer, well. and uh, yeah, we all love Charlie Boy, right?
4: Yeah, absolutely. Charlie's good tonight. Charlie's yeah. good
2: tonight, ain't he?
4: <laughs> yeah. All right.
1: Doing this is like it's doing it to a certain standard again and again and again and again and it's very tiring you know it's not necessarily playing bark or anything and it's not you know but it is the level of professionalism you put in and they're constantly doing it you know. The thing is with drumming is to learn the volumes of them how loud they are and to control that. The hardest thing is to play with an acoustic guitar player or a piano player acoustically. In an acoustic trio, for a drummer, to play really well is the hardest thing. I don't mean the notes you're playing, I mean the volumes you play at. Playing intense at a very low volume is much harder than playing intense loud, you know? Whole nother thing. Keith plays like whoever he loves, I play like whoever I love and that's, you know I'd see nothing wrong in that but, but together with a, a, and as a, a song written by them two it, it, it's a newer thing you know, or new so it, it can move a bit Rock and Roll's a bit stuck in a rut anyway always has been but that's what's kind of great about it is the boundaries it creates I mean, it has to bounce around in those boundaries. And when it does it well, it's marvelous. three chords with a, with a catch. And it can be the Fugas or the Beatles, you know. When they're right, they're great. I feel very fortunate that with a limited vocabulary, uh, people think it's wonderful or, or say nice things about me, you know. But I've never thought of things like that. Whenever anyone says to me... You know you get things like the greatest drum in the world, all that rubbish. I just think of all the other wonderful people who are playing. Yeah.
2: Sincere thanks and gratitude to John DeChristopher for joining us for this episode. And as always, thanks to you for listening. We'll talk with you next time.
3: Well, that's the show, friends. Thanks for listening. You can find us on our website, TrampsLikeUsPod.com. Communicate with us on Facebook, on our Tramps Like Us podcast group page. Rockin' and Rollin' and Whatnot Sidecast is a non-profit audio fanzine created by fans for fans and is available for free. We are not affiliated with Bruce Springsteen or any of the artists featured on the show. If you have heard any music you like, please find it and purchase it via Amazon, your local record store, or wherever music is sold. As always, gratitude and respect to all of the great musicians and performers we feature on the show. Stay cool, and keep rockin' and rollin' and whatnot.
0: We were in Toronto recording once, and uh, Charlie Watts who never sleeps.
5: Never sleeps?
0: No. He went for a walk in the town, you know. He was looking for something to eat. So he went to this little um, Indian restaurant he found. Mm-hmm. But before that, he looked around, he found a shop, a, a little um, tailor shop. And he found some trousers he wanted, and uh, they said they're a bit big. He buys them second hand sometimes, you know, old ones from <laughs> the 40s and that. Uh, Charlie's down on his luck, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, so they said, come back in a couple of hours. They'll be ready. So he went to this Indian restaurant, and he hadn't slept for about four days. So he gets... Four and say, days? Yeah, that's, no, that's normal. That's four not... days, and he says, I feel like doing a little shopping. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Gosh, how would a thing like that happen? <laughs> we don't have shops in England. And um, anyway, he sits there, and he falls asleep you know all the Chinese all these Indian guys around him he falls asleep and about two hours later they're, they're waking him up you know
5: mm-hmm.
0: and he's surrounded by cops as well and we're in Toronto it's yeah. pretty heavy down there and uh, so they're shaking him up and they say who are you he's all got stubble and everything you know what are you doing and he says well, where where am I where am I and they said you're in Toronto and he said Toronto what am I doing in Toronto you know and they think this guy's crazy and uh, and he said well what time is it and they said it's a quarter to three in the afternoon and he said oh great my trousers are going to be ready <laughs> <laughs> you should have charlie on the show <laughs> uh, oh thank you this
3: is in the critics set I mean. this must be the critics in the front uh, let So your dirty old drumsticks at me charlie you're right You got enough to drink? You got enough to drink, have you?